Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yes. I tell you what, that is the million-dollar question, and that's what I always ask the addicts that I work with. And you know what? They do want to change, but oftentimes they also don't want to give up the addiction. So part of my work is getting them to understand that there's a lot of collateral damage if they choose to continue to hang out with their best friend, whether that be porn, massage parlors, prostitutes, chat rooms, affair partners. You know, what I know to be true is what people really want is relationships, And that's why it's important to help them to figure out how they can let go and surrender to this horrible addiction and find substitutes that are healthy, 12-step groups, smart recovery, recovery nation, and real relationships with their kids, with their families, with their wives or their husbands. You name it, that's what we try to do. And so... I obviously believe that that is what they want. They want to be in integrity, and they want to be rigorously honest, and they want to change their life for the better. And that's what sex addiction is all about. Now, tonight we have a really good show. We're going to talk about couple-centered recovery with Kathy Reynolds and Jake Porter, who use this model to help couples to redevelop their relationships and work on their own personal core issues that probably came out of childhood. So we have them on the show at about 9.15. And I wanted to talk to you about something that I think is really exciting. My good friend and colleague, Stacy Sprout, is working on providing a group for clinicians So she wants everybody to know that she is offering a professional consultation group focused on best practices for treating female sex and love addicts. Stacy Sprout is an expert in this field, and she was willing to work with clinicians of all genders who are currently working with FSLAs who want support, treatment planning ideas, networking, and referrals. You know, you know, Stacy has made it her mission to help others with sex and love addiction. And uh, you can contact her at sprout, S-P-R-O-U-T, dot R, dot evolution, 
at gmail.com. Uh, Stacy is a published author. Uh, she is re- uh, she's written the Naked in Public, a memoir of recovery from sex addiction and other temporary insanities. It's available on Amazon, and she has a great newsletter with lots of information. So if you go to her website, you can get her newsletter, Hope is Indicated, the best and brightest in sexual recovery news, inspiration, and storytelling. And you can get that by going to www.stacysprout.com. And again, that's S-T-A-C-I. S-P-R-O-U-T, and dot com. There you go. Now, I had an email from somebody who really appears to be in good recovery, and he shared with me that he's been listening to the show for about 18 months, and he believes he's listened to every episode. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that. He's 43, and he's wrestled with sexual compulsivity in various forms since he saw a penthouse centerfold on the bus in the second grade. And my listeners know that oftentimes the fixation and compulsion starts early. You know, when you see something like this at a young age, you have no idea what it's about, but there's that inner drive to check it out and see more information. He said, over time, I've used pornography, chat rooms, dating sites, masturbation, fantasy, hookups, and escorts. I use this term instead of prostitution because of the more personal experience they offer as a means of coping with disassociative attachment and sexual abuse. He had been abused at the age of four years by a female teacher. And that then started his sexual compulsivity. Currently, I'm a little over two years clean on any form of acting out with another person and approaching another 30-day mark for all forms of acting out. I have spent the past 18 months making it between 30 and 100 days before a relapse, the last a single event to a couple weeks of acting out. That said, there's something different about this time in the sense that I feel like I'm finally operating from a place where I see the problem more as what I do with the abuse than the abuse itself. Shame isn't running my life these days. I'm not deluding myself into thinking I won't act out again or that I'm not vulnerable, but I feel confident that I can live into my true self. So here it is. My question is, how do I develop an alive and active empathy for all the wounding I've done to my wife, the kind that continuously seeks to connect and assure her that I'm a different man than I was when all this began? I think I have it when I stop and think about it, but in the flow of daily life, it gets lost. Well, that is a really good question, and I cannot believe he sent me this email because I'm writing a book on empathy right now. Get ready. I'm going to be publishing hopefully by the end of the summer. And what I tell sex addicts is that what they need to do is use my AVR system. And that stands for you need to acknowledge what's going on for your partner for the wife or the husband, depending on who is the partner. You need to validate, we'll just say her feelings, and then you need to reassure her. So that might look like this. Uh, I had a couple that did a disclosure this weekend, and she was highly activated, and she found out some horrible things about her husband, and she didn't know how she was going to process them, and if she even wanted to. She found out that her husband had some fantasies about her daughter and that he actually had been with a 16-year-old accidentally. 
And what I mean by this is that uh, the escort had said she was 18, but in actuality she later divulged that she was 16. Well, he stopped all communication at that point. But that was too much of an image for the partner, and I get that. So here's how he needed to use the AVR, because she was a mess. She couldn't sleep. She couldn't eat. She couldn't look at him. She was shaking. And he needed to say, I know I have caused all of your pain, and I am so sorry that I've done this. That's acknowledgement. And then he needed to validate her feelings. And he needed to say, you know, I realize that you're angry and you're scared and you're really confused about how you're going to handle this and whether you want to be with me. That's validation. And then the reassurance comes. And he says, but I want you to know I did this disclosure because I wanted to come clean. I wanted to be 100% honest with you so you could make the choice of what you wanted to do. And although, of course, I want you to stay with me, I want us to, to start a new life, I certainly understand whatever you choose to do, and I'll stand behind that because I love you and I want the best for you. That is reassurance. So when you acknowledge and you validate and you reassure, you at least communicate in a way that says, oh, man, I get I get the trauma I've caused, and I know that it's caused great problems and feelings, but I'm here. I'm here doing the right thing, and I know I've never done that before. So now we'll call him... Marty, Marty says he's done a great array of work, including therapy with CSATs, you know, that's a certified sexual addiction therapist, and other therapists, a CBT, an EMDR, a somatic therapist. He's used apps for guided hypnosis. He's done accountability and mindfulness like Hello Mind, Calm, Our Tribe, Brain Buddy. He did a three-day survivor intensive at the Meadows. Boy, I always recommend that. He listens to a variety of recovery podcasts. All his devices at home are on lockdown. He uses his phone to keep a record of his physical location so his wife can see where he is at any given moment. He sleeps on the couch when his wife works nights so that she can see him at all times on the computer's camera. And he's really working on rebuilding the trust. He does admit he has slips and relapses, and that's the damage, the collateral damage he is doing to his wife. He says, for example, had a long and very busy day at work yesterday. There were two big meetings, both of which involved a lot of preparation on my part, and he was putting the final touches on the preparation. And, you know, he was really, really being busy. The second meeting he had prepared had more of a variable in that he was not sure how long the meeting would last. His wife knew this, and he estimated a time when he'd be home, but they both knew it wasn't certain. So what do you do? When the second meeting happened, it went an hour longer than he expected, and of course it triggered his wife. He did text his wife when he was leaving, but the text came at a different time than it should have. And it didn't account for his filling his car up with gas and his stopping to get something to eat. And, again, it created a lot of trauma and post-traumatic stress for the wife. So when he got home, she gave him the silent treatment. 
And he felt like he couldn't do anything right, even though he felt like he had done everything right. And it was just very discouraging for him and obviously scary for her. And it made him wonder, is this worth it? Is it worth it for him? And is it worth it for her? At the end of the day, he said, I tried to remind myself that, you know, I can stop learning the hard way over and over and over again because at the end of the day, I'm doing the best I can. So you can see where a good day terribly wrong. And his wife was not happy at all. So he says, you know what, as I see it, the problem is that we went from when I left the house about 9.30 until 3.30 with no communication. And when I did communicate, it wasn't connective. It was just informative. And he knew that he really needed to provide more intimacy. So I will tell Marty, Marty, you know, you're a work in progress. You can't always do it right. And don't get discouraged. You know, you are on the right track. You're doing your very best. And my experience is partners usually hang in there, even when it's not perfect, if they know that you've made the effort. And that is what I want to tell you. And in my listening audience, especially the clinicians and coaches that are listening to this, this, we have... Um, an APSATS training. That is an incredible training that is specifically trauma-specialized for partners. And I say for partners, it means that we as clinicians and coaches want to learn how to support partners. And if you're interested in doing that and you're a clinician or a coach, I want you to go to APSATS.org, A-P-S-A-T-S.org, And look at the next training, which is at the end of February and the beginning of March. We are hoping to grab at least four or five of our listeners so that we can add clinicians and coaches to our staff. You know, it is an honor to get to work with partners, and it's an honor to get to work with sex addicts. And when you do, what you find out, is that you really make a difference in the world and they really appreciate it because it is an unsafe situation and we help to provide them safety. Now, tonight I am interviewing Kathy Reynolds and Jake Porter who practice couple-centered recovery. And I was so excited about this topic that I actually sought them out and said, hey, could you be on the show? I want to know more about it. And I know my listening audience does too. So, Hey guys, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi Thanks Carol. for having us. Yes, and so I've got Jake Porter and Kathy Reynolds on the line. And tell me a little bit about couple centered recovery and where did it come from? Yeah. So um again, just thank you for having us. I'm I'm glad to be on here and I know Kathy and I are both super excited about this because we're really passionate about about this idea of couple-centered recovery. So, you know, um, in, in traditional recovery models um, that, have, that have been around for a long time, there, there was a, a mentality that said, you know, if, if you are – an addict, and, and then you've got this partner who has been with you in this process, well, then they must have in some way been part of a system that has, that has fed your addiction. And, and so, you know, the first efforts to help partners of addicts often labeled them as codependents and, and that sort of thing. Um, I know um, your audience is familiar with AppStats. You were just talking about it earlier and the work that um, – that has come from that organization that helped to correct that model and introduce this idea of betrayal trauma, uh, the, the trauma that partners go through. Yeah. And, and so with that correction, you know, uh, the, the, there was this huge new voice that's important 
And and Kathy and I connected around that a few years ago, and we started working together doing disclosures. And we together started seeing, you know, there's there's another piece of this, this understanding of, of the trauma of the partner. If we can also see how the addict is also having these trauma reactions and, and how the relationship as a whole in this sort of process of, or this cycle of, of a trigger dance, a trauma dance, as, as some folks have called it, right? Um, mm-hmm. if, we can, if we can put that at the center, then we believe we can actually help couples heal faster. The older models, there was like two parallel tracks, right? His recovery, her recovery. You keep your side of the street clean, she keeps her side of the street clean. But we want couples to, you know, live together, to know each other, right? And, um, and so we also know from, from this emerging science around um, adult attachment and the connections that are there uh, between attachment um, issues and, and addiction that, that, that by putting that central relationship that, that relationship that's most important in the middle of the recovery process, if we can do that and let the individual recovery grow out of that, then, then we really believe we're actually getting to the root problem a whole lot faster, if that makes sense. Well, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, obviously you and Kathy work from this model, and and share a little bit how your perspectives may differ because of your own specific positions. Yeah, Kathy, why, why don't you, if you don't mind, you, maybe you can speak to that um, because you experience both models, right? Right, absolutely. So, Carol, let me tell you first that in addition to being a coach, um, I'm also a partner. So for myself and my husband in the beginning of our process, we didn't really have the best kind of support um, as far as our relationship, as far as our relationship was concerned. Um, So, of course, that's a whole other show in itself. But I had strong support from a therapist who really advocated for me, and that was really good. Um, My husband um, had his own therapist who still worked from that traditional side of the street model. Um, Therefore, even though we each had our own support, our relationship just was completely falling apart. Um, What I wish I had known then that I know now um, is that I, like Jake said earlier, I wasn't the only person traumatized in our relationship. Um, I really expected for my husband to be something for me and do things, uh, relate to me in a way that he simply wasn't capable of doing it. And when I, when I met Jake and we started working together several years ago, um, it, it was revolutionary for me. It really changed everything for me, not only in how I coach partners, but also personally. Um, I, when I came to that awareness, it gave me the courage to uh, be willing to, to try to work things out again with my own husband and then also um, tools to be able to better coach my partners, um, to be able to work through this dynamic in their relationship if that's what they wanted to do, if that was what their goal was. So um, in my personal situation, Carol, my husband and I actually divorced for um, over two years. Um, and in light of understanding um, this new model, um, we were actually able to reconcile and have a very strong relationship today. Wow, that is a success story, isn't it? Absolutely. (laughs) But it was a very painful process. It was not easy. And it's it's still not easy. It's a lot of work. It absolutely is. Trauma can come back up and and kind of haunt you a little bit. Now, so did you actually participate, Kathy, in couple-centered recovery? Or is that something you learned after two of you divorced and reconciliated? 
that was something I learned after. Um, that's what I learned when I started working with Jake. Um, you know, when it was very organic, the way that we started working together, I had a support group. He would refer partners. They wanted a disclosure. Um, they also wanted to work on their relationships. They wanted the marriages. And in the process of working with these couples and seeing how Jake worked um, from a couple-centered recovery approach, that's my first exposure um, to actually what that looks like. And we have had so much success. Our couples have been um, – they truly have healed exponentially faster. Uh, they, they're, they're very much in love very deeply connected. Um, it was. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful process to watch. Okay, Jake, you're going to have to tell us how does this self-centered <laughs> recovery work? Right. So, so, um, Clee, as human beings, we are created for connection. Right. We are relational beings, and. You know, a lot of the world of psychology for for many, many years um, was really about that intrapersonal experience, like inside the person, right? And it wasn't until, you know, someone named John Bowlby, who's sort of the father of of what we call attachment theory, came along. And uh, right around, you know, the Second World War, he actually – or between the First and Second World War and, and slightly after, he, he started studying the effects of, um, of, of having, you know, a poor bonding experience, having negative experience in childhood and how that affects you later in adulthood. And he started pushing back against this idea that if I've got, you know, um, depression or anxiety or these different manifestations of, of all these 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 challenges that, you know, as clinicians will often label them as this or that, that, that that exists inside my head. And so the solutions inside my head, he said, no, we're created for relationships and science is bearing that out. You know, there's all kinds of research out there that tells us that when we feel securely connected to other people, then we're healthier in every way, physically, emotionally, mentally, and just like a little baby, um, you know, a baby who feels really strongly connected to his mom, his mom can take him to the park, and he'll run out and play, and he'll have fun, and he can look back and he can see his mom, and he might run back to his mom for a minute and then run out and play again. There's this relationship between this secure attachment and this freedom to live. It's the exact same way in adults. So, so you take a couple – who they're attached, but maybe their attachment's not not healthy. It's not secure. It's not all it can be. Well, we really believe that if we can just help people experience relationships at that deep level, if they can have that relational need met that we're all wired with, then it actually allows both the addict and the partner to get the things that they need in recovery. So, for example, the addict, he needs to learn how to deal with all the stressors of life, all the challenges, maybe voices of shame in his head, all of these, all of these huge things that, that have to be conquered in recovery. You know, he can face those if he knows he's safe, if he knows he's not alone. If he knows he's got a partner there who's going to face that with him, um, she needs to know that she's worthy and chosen and a priority and that, that he is with her, that if she reaches for him, that she's going to find him there. If she calls for him, he's going to come. Those are the things partners need to know to, to, to move through their trauma. And so by focusing on that relationship and putting it in the center – we really believe that individually they get their needs met and together the coupleship is getting healed at the same time. That makes a lot of sense. And so I'm curious, 
obviously you both really believe that couple-centered recovery increases the likelihood of success and recovery as well as that relationship that you need to feel good self-esteem and and to feel attached. And I always say, you know, you talked about connection. Connection is the antidote for sexual addiction. So use Absolutely. the connection. Yes. All life, and, and what I know is it's also secondary to really helping with addiction. So I've got a couple questions for you because clearly Kathy is the benefactor of this kind of recovery, and she and her husband obviously had trouble, they divorced, and then they got back together. So, Kathy, I'm going to ask you, you know, how do you feel CCR is the same or different from a partner-centered approach? Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, like I said before, um, with the partner-centered approach, I feel like in in some ways uh, the partner sometimes may be falsely empowered. Um, I know it's been my experience. It was my experience personally, and it's my experience with um, some of my clients we have this idea, this this belief that we're supposed to be angry, right? We're supposed to be mad at our husband. And if we let that go, then um, we're letting them off the hook, right? So right. what I have found is that when I, when I really help the partners understand that not only is that not the case, you're not letting them off the hook, but actually when they give themselves permission to look at the underlying emotions and feelings that they're feeling and their husbands, it's actually empowering them to be able to change their situation. They can have some some control. They can actually do something that can change the dynamics in the relationship. And when they look at that and they see that as a strength and not a weakness, it changes everything for them. And then they're more willing to be vulnerable and put themselves out there. So to me, that's, that's really the difference. It's empowering for them. Um, whereas if it's centered on only the partner, the relationship is forgotten. And at the end of the day, Everybody loses. Nobody wins. She's angry. She's um, lonely. Uh, Her marriage is destroyed. Their family is destroyed. Um, I just find that helping them find the connection that they both deeply want and desire that I believe we are all created for um, is is the best way for, for them to heal. And and if I can, you know, tag on there, um, sure. Brene Brown in in her work, she talks about shame shields as uh, three different ways that people sort of react to shame and and try to disengage from the pain of shame. And she talks about um, moving away, moving toward, and moving against. Okay, and so moving moving away is withdrawing. And for a long time, we've told addicts, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to, to regain trust in your relationship, you can't withdraw. You've got to be there. You've got to lean into it. You have to be able to validate her emotions and, and, and hold them with her. You can't, you know, turn inward on yourself and, and leave the room or, or even stay in the room but leave emotionally. So, so we know about that, you know, moving away. And then there's, there's moving against, and that's attacking that's getting defensive, that's getting angry, that's getting critical. And, and we knew that that was wrong for a long time. But I remember when I learned uh, about moving toward, I went, oh, this is, this is important in the work we do with addicts. So when you move toward someone as a shame response, it's people-pleasing. It's about, you know, oh, my goodness, that was so bad. I just need to make you happy. I need to, 
I, I just I'm just going to try to smooth this over, but it's still a shame response. It's still not authentic. Well, sometimes what can happen, I think, is that we actually train our addicts. Oh no, don't you withdraw? Oh no, don't you attack? Mm-hmm. But it's okay to do this move towards shame response. And and what's happening then is he might be doing all the right things, but the partner can still sense that emotionally he's not being authentic and he's not being as connected as she really wants him to be. And so it's like there's something still wrong, but they can't put their finger on it. Right. And so that's why it's so important to to teach that it's not just the partner who's having trauma reactions. That shame response on his part, that's a trauma reaction as well. And we've got to step back and kind of look at the whole picture of how the the trauma reactions are interacting with one another if we want to, to kind of unplug that process and take the power out of it. Right. Well, and I get that. Now, let me let me just ask you, because obviously I'm an APSATS, and one of the things that we know is that even though we're providing partner-sensitive treatment, we also believe that it is that connection between the addict and the partner whereby if we can teach the addict how to um, – be aware of the partner's pain and validate that mm-hmm. and then reassure, mm-hmm. then build upon itself and actually in some ways um, the addict's self-esteem goes up when they know that they've actually connected in a healthy way yes. and the partner yes. feels reassured and, and can build that trust a little bit. And it's it's a slow dance, but it, it, mm-hmm. if it's done it really seems to work. Now, how would you Absolutely. say couple-centered recovery is different from a partner-sensitive approach? Is there something more going on here than merely rejecting the codependence, which we all know we don't really believe in, that co-addict model? Right. Right, right. I think... Well, I, I mean, I love and I, I've been through the training. I've, I've started some of my supervision towards certification. So I'm I'm a fan of APSATS and, um, and benefited greatly from that training. And I do think that that, that is taught. I would say that, that one of the differences is that we're very explicit. When, when, I, when I engage a couple in this process, I'm really explicit that, we are going to be looking at the dyad, at the at the coupleship as the client. Right. That that the coupleship really is in the center. Um, so from the very beginning, you know, yeah, there's individual work that they still do. Um, there's there's still processes to even prepare them to to start this couple centered work, um, but. But we're very explicit that we're going to be speaking into this cycle that exists between them. And this is where, you know, I draw a lot from emotion-focused therapy, Sue Johnson's work, and, and, and utilize that and try to bring that into the process, start introducing it into the couple's recovery um, and, and the healing process a lot sooner than um, some, some other models teach you can do that. Okay, well, that's a good explanation for how it's a little different. Yeah, Kathy, go ahead. Can I just add something to that? I I want to say something about when we, I mean, we do this from the very beginning, um, from from the disclosure on, and we're always coming back to what that, that dance is and, and helping the couple understand the dance that they're in and how to change it. Um, but what I have found to be so powerful um, during the disclosure process as far as the connection is concerned, for the addict, um, when we can create an environment that's safe for both of them to experience what a real connection is, even even through pain, even through the the 
the trauma of, of a disclosure, that in and of itself is an intimate moment um, in a couple's relationship. And when he can experience being fully known and and feeling the connection with his wife, even if it's not necessarily um, a, a happy situation, it's very painful, um, I find that he craves that. He wants that. He desires that. He actually begins to realize what he's been missing. And and they and the same for the partner. Um, I've had so many women who have have said to me after their disclosure process that as painful as it was, they never felt closer to their husband. And they they get a taste of what it feels like to be in a safe place, to, to be able to hear um, painful information um, but still be present with one another. It's really beautiful. And and I think talking about the disclosure process in couple-centered recovery is a, is a great way to kind of highlight how it is a little bit different. So when I was taught to do disclosures, I can remember I was in Module 2 of uh, CSAT training and, uh, you know, so grateful for that training, could not do my work without it. And I remember learning about, about the disclosures, and I remember someone saying, someone who, who, had, who had done some disclosures, who I think was auditing the, the module, saying, you know, I just, I just tell the partners, hey, this is, this is going to be terrible, it's going to be bad, um, you know, I feel like I'm basically putting you right in front of a, a, a train that's coming at you. And and then he actually talked about how he tries to help the partners just take it in as information, try to, you know, disconnect from the emotions of it, just take it in as information. And I, I was sitting there thinking, that cannot be, <laughs> that cannot be right. Um, because, you know, what we know about, about the brain, about the way we process things, about about uh, about how trauma is created. I'm thinking, oh my goodness! So at some point, she's got to face the emotions of all of this, and you're going to ask her to do it when and where and how is it going to come up later? And I mean, we can try to give them aftercare support and 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 plans for that night and all this, but in that moment, in that moment. That's when that partner needs to know she's being supported and held, that she's not alone. Yes, yeah. from her therapist, but what if he can be there in that moment of the disclosure that, that as he is sharing the content, that there's a process in place where he is also emotionally present with her so that She's hearing that content with her whole brain online. And so we know that what that does in the brain is when, when my whole brain's online, when I'm not in that state of threat, you know, in that fight or flight state of threat, when my amygdala is not, you know, being in the alarm bell, but I can keep my whole brain online and, and feel safe and hear that, that information, well, it's going to be integrated into my brain in such a way that there's not going to be the likelihood of all these these triggers being created, all this trauma being created. So, so that's a that's a great example of of one way that we try to intentionally again put that coupleship even during the discovery uh, the disclosure process right there in the middle. Well, I highly agree, and you know, one of the things that I love about the APSATS model that's a little bit different from ITAP is that we really believe that disclosures need to happen as soon as possible because um, yeah. a partner who has to wait six months, one year, two mm-hmm. years to hear the real truth is in a traumatized state that entire time. And so it's that's good right. to hear you about the fact that you have really learned how to embrace the power of a disclosure both from both trainings, and it sounds like that is very couple-centered recovery, too. Now, I'm going to ask you I've, something. You talked about my hero, Sue Johnson, and you've gotten mm-hmm. to train with her. 
and she really does talk about EFT. Tell us a little bit about that. So emotion-focused therapy is, um, yeah, it's it's one of one of the as far as the numbers go. If you just look at the research literature, it's it's shown to be one of the most effective treatment models out there. And what what I love about EFT is that when I'm when I'm doing good work with EFT with a, a, a couple, I'm not playing mediator, okay? Because what EFT is about, it's about I'm gonna we're gonna slow this thing down, we're gonna slow this stance down, and we're gonna try to understand that the way I put it to my couples is the issue's rarely the issue. You know? So if a couple fights over um, you know, you brought that book home and and you should have seen that you know the author's name was the name of one of one of your um, partners that you cheated on me with, you know and and okay and yeah that kind of trigger we need to deal with that but what's going on underneath that? She's feeling like he doesn't see her, right. he doesn't hear her, he doesn't you know she's alone in this. Um, even even if she believes that he wouldn't do it on purpose or he just didn't see it well. He's going, I didn't do it on purpose. I'm sorry. It's just, But that's not the problem. The name's not the problem. The problem at that point is that she feels like he doesn't see her, hear her. He's not with her in this. And so EFT helps people get down to the real root, basic, primal need to know that I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. I'm enough. And And so we slow people down. We help them. Learn to share from that that deeper place, and the beautiful thing is that then when they can talk about that stuff from the deeper place, one, it's it's mutually healing. So, for example, say you've got a partner who's feeling not chosen, right? She's not chosen. She's not a priority. Uh, if 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 he like Sue says, if she reaches, she can't find him. If she calls. She believes he's not going to come, and she reacts to that threat of disconnection with criticism or questioning or anger. Well, that anger then triggers his shame. He's not enough. He's not measuring up again. And, and with that shame, then he, he's triggered into a withdrawal state, and he backs away. And when he's backing away, what's that doing? Well, now it's reinforcing her underlying uh, hurts and wounds. She, she's alone again. Mm-hmm. She, she can't call for him to come. She can't reach for him and find him. And it's just this cycle. So when we get down there and we share from that place and she says, she says, I, I just, or, or she hears him say, um, I'm so sorry that you feel alone. I never wanted you to be alone. I, I see how this is hurting you, and, and, and that's not what I want. She can sense that he feels her pain. Well, suddenly she feels his presence, and she realizes she, she's important to him if, if he's feeling her pain. And in that same moment, he's enough because just his presence with her, validating her, holding that pain with her, just his presence is enough to 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 – help her, give her what she needs. And so his shame gets a, a touch of healing there. It's a beautiful process, mm-hmm. a beautiful process. And it, it, it takes a long time. It doesn't happen overnight. It, it takes practice. It's a skill that they have to learn. Right. So, yeah, you admit, Kathy, that it, it takes skill, but it also takes practicing it over and over and over again. And, what we know to be true, I, I just heard a man say this today who is in recovery. He said, I'm not interested in creating an action plan. I'm interested in creating an action practice. And I love that mm-hmm. because that does mean it's not just something you put out there to do. It's practice. It's something you do over and over and over again. So now I'm going to ask Kathy. Right. You know, obviously, Kathy, you learned some incredible skills and tools to deactivate when you were triggered and to increase trust and faith in your husband. Can you share one of those that was perhaps couples 
um, focus? Sure. Um, I think one of the well, let me just say this. Let me let me speak to um, practicing. Sometimes we're just going to blow it. So one of the things that was a skill for me is when we blew it, that it's okay to come back and say we blew it. Can we do that over? Okay. Um, so that's, one, that's definitely one skill. Because we're not going to get it right. Either one of us. It's okay. I let you off the hook. Um, <laughs> I say I let you off the hook. Because, of course, it's going to always be his fault, right? Um, right. So one of the, <laughs> one of the one of the other skills for me is is um, to really learn how to relax my body and to breathe. That was primal for me. The mindfulness, um, taking time away, stepping out of the situation. Um, sometimes, honestly, prying myself away from the situation and not engaging for the sake of my own sanity, um, my own health, my own trauma, and the sake of the relationship. Um, and, again, uh, that took time. It took practice. It took skill. Um, and sometimes I would be walking out of the room um, with my fingers in my ear because he would still be talking. And But I... inevitably when when I had the ability to do that, and I could draw from my personal strength, pick up the phone, call one of my support girls, um, download on them and because they were a safe person for me or a safe place for me. Um, they would help me to get grounded. Sometimes I can't ground myself. I need to call a friend. I need them to do it for me. Uh, and when I'm able to do that, because we are very deeply connected, um, he will come back. He will do the same thing. He has the same skill set I do. He has the same tools I do. Connection with other people. Pick up the phone. Make a phone call. Um, so those are those are um, my big ones. Yeah, those are great skills. Uh, I'm telling you. So now, guys, you obviously are doing great, great work. And do you work in concert with each other? or separately? How do you do that? So um, Kathy, uh, I, she, she joined me in, in my practice. of uh, It's called Daring Ventures. Uh, but Kathy had her own very successful um, practice going on as well. But, but we started doing so much work together that, um, that we were actually, you know, working in the same organization now. And that's that's really helped for logistical reasons. Um, and and the, what it looks like when we work together often is that she is coaching um, the partners typically, and I'm working with the addicts. And um, lots of our folks come in for disclosure, and then we continue working with them afterwards. And, you know, I totally agree with you that we want to do disclosures as quickly as possible. Um I also think we can do them too quickly. Now, so we usually take about four weeks. That's my goal is, is to take four weeks so that he can be thorough, so that he's got left no stone, you know, unturned. And, and while I'm doing that with him, Kathy's working with the partner, and this is where she's, she's teaching some of these really basic skills, the, the grounding skills, the regulation skills that are going to allow her to have that whole brain online and drop that, drop that shield just a little bit, make herself a little bit vulnerable um, in that disclosure process to, to think that he might show up emotionally and that they might be able to have a connection even in, around uh, that painful information. So, so she works with the, the partner and, and I'm working with the addict and we coordinate that process uh, throughout the preparation and then during the disclosure, we're both present to help, you know, act as a container for that couple. 
Well, and I absolutely agree with you, Jake. Um, the average amount of time it takes me to work with an addict on disclosure is about six weeks to make sure it's absolutely complete. And for the partner, it's anywhere from two to three because, of course, she's gathering questions and making sure right. that she identified everything she thinks she wants to know. And, of course, we both, we all know that during a disclosure, additional questions come up. Right. Now, do you all yeah. use the polygraph um, test at the end of the disclosure? We do. We do. Uh, we're, we're very blessed to have a, a great um, polygraph uh, examiner here in Houston, Stephen Kabler, who has – um, he has he's done I don't know five or six thousand polygraphs with sex addicts at this point, and we actually utilize um, some material that he has developed to help the addicts in the disclosure process as well. Some really helpful questions that help the addict to dig and really remember and, and bring stuff up. So we do we 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 do use uh, that polygraph. And a lot of ours, this is another thing that's a little different than how some folks do it. Um, we typically, not every time, but typically, we'll have the disclosure that morning and then the polygraph sort of midday, and then we follow that right up with the impact letter process um, where she reads her impact letter, he reads his restitution letter, and uh, then sometimes she will read an encouragement letter as well. But even in those, we're trying to, to help them tune into those more relational components to, to address the impact from that, that deeper place um, so that it's not just a, a, a listing of all the things that are wrong in my life now because of your addiction, but it's really speaking to the pain. Um, right the shame, the the anger that's deeply rooted down in there, um, the feeling of not being enough, not of, of being alone. We wanna we wanna help her begin to express that. And it's it's yeah, it's a beautiful process. Well and you know, honestly you talked about that deep pain and the wounding and and you both come, as do I, from a a place where much addiction is due to early relational trauma. I mean, not at all addiction, but a lot right. of it has to do with core wounding and then sexual trauma reenactment. So can you say a little bit about your thoughts on how addiction might be the result of early relational trauma and, and how you deal with that from a coaching and a clinician standpoint? Sure. Um, there's there's a book uh, by Philip Flores called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder that I read several years ago that was just a a game changer for me. Um, I, I I am in recovery myself as well, and and I read that book before I was doing this work uh, professionally, and it helped me make sense of of um, of, of my own story in a lot of ways. So, so what we know is that that when we are young, from from the third trimester all the way through those early years, our brains are literally um, dependent on our caregivers, you know, to to help us first regulate our affect, which means you know, like a like calm ourselves, right? Um, babies are relying on the that caregiver to both stimulate them and soothe them, and through that process, we know that 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 is actually stimulating the literal neurological development of the brain, particularly the the right brain. So, when early in life there are traumas, um, or when there has been neglect, when there hasn't been that stimulation. To, to bring about that optimal development, well, that we carry that on in to, uh, into adulthood. And so if, if, if I get my ability to regulate my emotions, because that's what those early experiences with the caregivers are teaching us to do, we're learning how to regulate our emotions. If I didn't get that, well, then I'm going to have a really difficult time later in life 
with anxiety or with fear or with shame. And so I'm going to turn and use something on the outside to change the way I feel on the inside. And so, and so we believe also though, and, and, and not just us, this is, this is coming out all over the place in our field, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing that when I learn to connect, suddenly I can tolerate those distressing emotions in a way that I couldn't before. And I don't need to turn toward whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or food or whatever it is to change the way I feel on the inside. Right. So for me, Carol, to answer your question from a coaching perspective, when I'm uh-huh. coaching my partners, I, I educate them on that process right there. I, I find if I can help them to find a common ground in their trauma and their husband's childhood trauma, um, it, it doesn't hijack the partner's trauma, but it just it just gives her a little more understanding, which can leave space for her to have some compassion when she's ready to. Um, it 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 humanizes her her husband. I'll say husband for just the sake of this show. Um, it it humanizes him, um, and and what that does for for the partner. It's never going to completely take away the feeling of betrayal, but in some ways, over time, it can help to depersonalize it. Um, it will help her come to an understanding that um, it it really is not about all those not enough messages that that she's struggling with. That it's this is what it is. It's, this is really his issue. This is really his problem. This really doesn't have anything to do with me. I am enough. Um, so it again, it just creates an environment for uh, her healing, um, and then also for his healing. They're able to find a common ground. Oh. So you understand my trauma because oh you've experienced it too. He may not have an awareness around that right away, but in time I believe that, that they do. And, again, they once they have that secure attachment with one another, um, there's like a shift in their relationship, and there is a safety there that makes it um, just a, a, a breeding ground for healing for them as individuals and then for their relationship. And over time, um, when they've, gone through this process um, for a while, their connection is so strong and their intimacy is, is just so deep that they really can become best friends. That's how I feel about my husband. Uh, that's been our experience. We have both been able to um, heal from our early childhood traumas, and, and that process of working through that together is what has made our relationship as strong as it is today. Got it. You know, guys, you are doing such good work, and I thank you so much for contributing tonight and teaching people about couple-centered recovery. How can they get a hold of you if they're interested in the intensives that you provide or in the work that you're doing? Well, um, the easiest thing to do would be to go to our website, which is um, daringventures.com, daringventures. Some people think I'm saying adventures sometimes, but it's just daringventures.com. And uh, there, there's all sorts of uh, uh, contact information, phone number. There's appointment request app right there on the website. And uh, they can read more about the different types of intensives that we offer and different services. But that's that's the hub right there. Right. They can also I appreciate email us that. If and they again, may to. I just that, that is Daring Ventures, D A R I N G Ventures, V E N T U R E S dot com. And then, Kathy, how about you? Um, email. Um, they can reach me through Daring, Daring Ventures, but they can also email me. And that would be Kathy at DaringVentures.com. 
Excellent. And I'm uh, Jake at DuringAdventures.com if anyone wants to reach out to me. Yeah. Well, Kathy and Jake, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I so appreciate the fact that you have made it your mission to help couples because too often times there are people that want to help the sex addicts and they forget about the partner or mm-hmm. people that want to help the partner but they know that it's been so painful that they set really intensive boundaries that the couple shit can't grow from. So you're both doing great work, and I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol, thank and thank you, you for all the work that you do in our field uh, to educate and to encourage, and uh, we, we really appreciate you. Yes, ma'am. Thank well, you absolutely. so much for having us on. Well, and I look forward to talking to you both more about the different projects that you got going on. So you have a great week, and uh, we're all working in this together. That's Bye-bye. right. Bye-bye. Yes, Bye-bye. thank you. Uh-huh. All right, so that was Kathy Reynolds and Jake Porter, who do Couple Centers Recovery, CCR, and obviously – They really do believe in relationships, and connection is about relationships, and it's the antidote to sex addiction. So, hey, connection is the word for the week. And now we have to end, and as I say at the end of every show, you know, there will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself, and I'll catch you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Make it a great one.